Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. When breaking down what makes a horror movie work, or not, it is easy to bypass one of its most important elements. The script, the atmospheric lighting and lens choice, the cast, the visual and makeup effects, the editorial approach are all important ingredients when leading the audience down that dark path to their deepest fears. But a particularly crucial piece of the puzzle is usually the last one to be locked in, the musical score. Music can make or break a film. It can make a good movie of any genre great. Or it can take a mediocre or crummy film and make it better. Or it can just sit there in a puddle of its own lifeless blood. Film music is its pulse, and when the right film and composer meet, magic happens. Movies are visceral, experiential. Music may be mathematical on charts, but from its beginnings with the heartbeats of prehistoric tribe members around the campfire to the fantastic digital samples and electronic oral creations that never existed in nature, it amplifies our emotions, digs in deep to primal places that words and pictures cannot easily access. Even when they were silent, movies always had a soundtrack. In the pre-Vitaphone days, score sheets were distributed with the films to the cinemas, and the music was performed live on giant Wurlitzer pipe organs in the most elegant big city theaters, or an out-of-tune old Steinway upright in the more modest locations. They were, for the most part, consistent in that regard. Tension is built as much through sound as through image, and in some ways even more. Just as the storytelling tools of cinema have evolved over the years to become a language of their own, so too has the metamorphosis of film music led us to expect, or not, the traps being laid by the score. Some aspects of these are obvious. The loud, discordant chord crashing onto the jump scare, the long-held note warning us of something awful to come. Those are simple staples of the shocker, to the point of being self-parodying. But the soundscapes woven by the composer may also create an unsettling dread, a rich, deep, emotional experience that follows us home from the theater to haunt us just a little bit longer. Music has always been crucial for me, and it has allowed me to cover numerous cinematic sins I might have committed without anyone noticing. Two of the best composers of horror film scores are Richard Band and Joseph Bashara. Richard has been doing it since the 70s, perhaps most famously and notoriously for his Bernard Hermanesque soundtrack for Stuart Gordon's Reanimator, and most recently on our upcoming film Nightmare Cinema. Joe is probably best known for his scores for the films of James Wan, most notably the Insidious and Conjuring movies. So let's get some insight into one of the most important elements in the making of a powerful horror film, the music of the night, right after this. You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts, literally. To the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. 
So, Richard, you started playing in bands in the 60s. Did you study classical music first, or were you a rocker? Or how did your musical Jones begin? Well, I was, uh, I was definitely a rocker. Um, but actually, I started uh, because my father was a, other than being a filmmaker, he was very much into classical music. So we always played classical music in the household. And, was everyone uh, in the family a player? No, nobody was a player. Only no, you. No, no, nobody. So when at, you say that, playing classical music, you playing, mean on I records. I mean playing on records, yeah, right, okay. on, on, a, on a big, uh, you know, phonograph, the old, uh, what's, the, what's the one with the G, uh, gram, <laughs> gram, whatever. Oh, gramophone. Gram, yeah, thank yeah, you, thank yeah, you, yeah. gramophone. Anyway, uh, and we lived in Europe at the time uh, uh, where we were listening to a lot of that. And at the time that we moved to Paris, after my dad did a show in Sweden, we, uh, I would come home. I was about five and a half or six years old at the time. I'd come home, and every day I would get up on the dining room table and air conduct Beethoven's Fifth or Ninth <laughs> Symphony. Uh, I was just so into, into that. At and what age? About five and a half yeah, or six okay. years old. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I was... I was, I was not air guitar playing. I was air conducting at the time. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> awesome. And uh, so any, anyway, but, you know, within a few years after doing that, uh, um, I then, you know, then the Beatles came and then various, and I got a lot, you know, very much into rock and roll and so forth and so on. And it was in the, uh, in the sixties that I, uh, Again, on location, this time in Spain, several years later, I went to my first flamenco show uh, because my dad was doing a show in, in, Madri in Madrid, in mm -hmm. Spain, and uh, I was just blown away by the guitar. And the next day, I went out and bought myself a guitar and taught myself how to play. And within a couple of years, I was uh, forming my own bands in Italy and, uh, and playing around various places in Italy, which towards the end before I came back to this country was a good deal of Europe and so, so you were was, primarily uh, a guitarist but I was you a took guitarist. up keyboards later for it, synth yes much later right I took up keyboards later actually even before keyboards I took up clarinet uh, uh, because I wanted a true I, rock and roll I, instrument a true yeah. rock and roll clarinet <laughs> exactly but I knew you see there was a method to the madness I knew hey if I got the clarinet down then I'd have the saxes down, and I'd have flutes, and I'd, so it was a, it was a good idea to, to do that. I was terrible, but it didn't matter. <laughs> it, it didn't didn't matter. You were good enough for rock and I, roll. I was yeah. good enough, definitely good enough for rock and roll. But um, so it was first guitar, then then the clarinet, and then of course uh, uh, piano, right. and that's uh, sort of was the genesis of how that started out. Now, Joe, you also you studied classical music before rock and roll, or did one feed the other? Uh, I was definitely drawn to classical music first as a very little kid. Some of my earliest memories are listening to classical cassettes. I would just I just remember going to sleep listening to classical cassettes on a very regular basis. Just don't know why, but it was drawn there. And shortly after, I came across. Um, just at an electronics store down the street from where I grew up, came across, they had an old mug synth there, and I just used to well, put on wow. the headphones and just tweak the filters, and that really was just, I just found myself really sonically motivated very young. Well, this was a monophonic uh, Moog, or was it a polyphonic? 
I don't even remember. It was yeah. probably Monoc- monophonic, monophonic. I'm yeah. gonna guess. Yeah. 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 Probably was seven or eight years old. So And you were in bands as well. I started um I, I was in bands in a little after high school, but before that I started playing trumpet in third grade, I believe. That was what gave me a bit of a ground in learning how to read and write music, primarily just how the fundamental basics worked. And I played that through through junior high, pretty much. And so where in the country were you brought up? Where were you born? Mostly in Los Angeles. I was oh, in LA so you're almost native. my whole life, except for first through eighth grade, it was in Las Vegas. So oh, oh, really? LA, Vegas, and then LA the rest of the time. So both of you were in, in areas where entertainment was important around you. I mean, Las Vegas, you can't avoid that, although maybe your life was not centered in that. Was it? Uh, was, was your family involved? Yeah. No, <clears throat> my family weren't involved in entertainment, no. But uh, Richard, your father was a filmmaker. I mean, I Bury the Living and yes. Face of Fire are two really strong genre films yes, that he yes, had directed. Right. And so you grew up where he was already making movies when you were born, right? Yes, I grew up in, in the film business from the earliest of ages. In fact, my brother and I, we had this huge role in Face of Fire, as a matter of fact. Right. When we played the two little kids. I guess I was five and my brother was seven at the time so that's why we would uh, you know follow him around when living in europe whenever he'd go do a location shoot and it was conducive to us being on location i.e during the summer vacations when we right. weren't in school we'd always go whether it was spain yugoslavia it didn't matter we always went along so we were we were reared in in the film business and movies were a big part of your life and music was yes. a big part of your life just as a listening experience when did the idea and and your brother of course became a huge producer of films particularly later, in the later genre that's yeah. right and your paths crossed quite a bit right but when did the idea of music and movies as a marriage for you personally take place well it's interesting uh, <laughs> there was uh after coming back from living in europe for all those years i went to uh study music formally at a liberal arts college called immaculate heart college no longer exists but i think that the high school still exists but the college doesn't and uh it was it was a very good uh, education there um but after about two and a half, three years, I got kind of tired of academia. And because my because I grew up in the film business and because my father was doing films and my brother at that point was starting to do films, I decided to take a break from, uh, from music, formal music studies, although I did continue them privately, but from the college end of it, and uh, got, get more into production. So... I uh, started doing production work first as an assistant director, and then after production manager, production manager. That's right, uh, and basically ended up doing about twelve or thirteen films, eventually all the way up to associate producer and producer. This is very left brain versus right brain stuff here that you managed to jump between. Very much, very much so, and but it got to the point for me where. While I was actually very good at what I was doing, plus I grew up in the business, so I really had a good feel for it, it wasn't satisfying that part of me that was the creative end. Yeah. And uh, that really got to me. So one summer, uh, I decided to take a holiday. I went back to Europe 
uh, on my own and spent a few weeks in Europe. And I'll remember to your question, I remember to the day <clears throat> I was in uh, southern France. I was on the beach in, uh, in Monte Carlo, as a matter of fact. Every memory that starts with, it was in the south of France. Yeah, south of France. Yes. It's got to go somewhere good. It's got to go yeah. somewhere there. <laughs> south of France, I remember because I can even see it in my mind's eye. Anyway, so there I was. I'm going, what am I going to do? Because I love films. I grew up with films and all this, but I love music at the same time. And I love films. I love music. I'm going back and forth. I'm sitting on the beach looking at this huge boulder rock out in the middle of the ocean, asking myself this question. If you imagine a cartoon, all of a sudden the proverbial light bulb went off mm -hmm. above my head. And uh, it came to me right there. I said, well, well what about mu music for films? And I go, wow. It, it was that ding sort of moment. And... I was really excited, and I came, this was right at the time that my brother had finished doing, I think, one of his first two was films. Was this Laser Blast? Laser Blast, ah, right. okay. And I came back, so we're talking about 1977. I came back to the States. The year of Star Wars. It, that's right. That's right. Okay. And I came back to the States, and uh, at that time, he, he had finished doing that, and so I convinced him that let me give me a shot at give me a shot at this he says well i don't have that power actually it has to be approved by in this case by erwin yablons because it was a compass international film mm -hmm. so anyway bottom producer line, of halloween as halloween well. yeah. that's how he made his fortune and, yeah. and his big mark exactly so i had to go meet with erwin which was a interesting experience on its own but the bottom line is i got the score and Part of the reason I got the score is because I was going to co-write it with Joel Goldsmith, who was the son of Jerry Goldsmith. Wow. So Irwin's thinking was, hey, you know what? We can capitalize on the Goldsmith name at the same time, mm. right? Typical thinking of a businessman yeah. and all that. And lo and behold, we were given the massive budget of $1,000 <laughs> for the score, an orchestral and, school. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. Of course, <laughs> yeah. and uh, off we were. But that those were the that was the the genesis. That moment in France, the light bulb going off, and just the fortune of within a couple of a months marriage coming of back these two art forms of these yeah. of the two art forms. And once once uh, I had tasted that <laughs> you wanted more i wanted more <laughs> exactly so exactly. joe um were movies a passion of yours as well as music at the time very <clears throat> very much so um horror particularly was drawn to horror films grew up watching them and that's what i always wanted to do it's it was always very clear i i did think for a little while that i wanted to be a makeup effects artist really was, because i would just read fangoria and famous monsters and all right. of that and that's well what you've actually been under some makeup effects as a demon right. a couple of times right, right. i have it, yeah. so just having had this from just from so early really wanting to just live in these worlds of makeup effects and horror movies and music it's i really couldn't have grown into a more complete expression of everything i ever wanted as a kid pretty much so right so. well you were into silent films too weren't you like uh, cabinet of dr caligari things that, like that that was one of the first that i remember seeing that really 
just really opened my mind to that. And that was on Super 8 film. I came up with my uh-huh. parents that a Super 8 projector. I remember yeah, watching that. castle films. Uh, yeah. I checked it out from the local library. That was in Vegas. I remember the library had a Super 8 reel of, of wow. Dr. Caligari. And I had seen, seen just images and stills from film books because they used to also just sit and peruse and just get lost in those. And so just being able to see that and to see how that imagery worked just really clicked something in me very nonverbal, nonlinear thinking. It was more just, I can't even really explain it. It was just a sense of this is where I belong. This is where I want to be. Did you ever try uh, to put music to those silent images um, in early experimentation? I have, I did. And that's one thing that I even suggest to sometimes when people ask me about just advice or suggestions for getting into composing for film. One thing I do suggest that people do is to go, and just score anything. If it's if you don't have something specifically a job to score, find existing footage, silent films, whatever it is, just make music to picture. Right. What was your first opportunity and how did it come about as far as actually being hired to do a score for a film? The very first film that I was actually hired to score would have been um actually something that never even never even I don't even think it ever finished. But <laughs> there was a lot of little bits along the way. But the first proper thing um, I went down the road of trailers for a while. I was mm-hmm. doing, um, I was working with a band called Prong on the film Strange Days, uh-huh. and the the music supervisor asked me to score their trailer. And from that trailer, I ended up getting asked to do a bunch more trailers. Just one thing led to the next. Oh, great! Um, around that time, also, I did a film called Joseph's Gift, which was a, a weird biblical drama that um was directed by philippe mora and oh yeah i, I, I knew philippe yeah. because it's like i'd seen the beast within and right and howling three howling two yeah so so that was cool to get i to was a that. publicist on the beast within so right. i was on location <laughs> when they were shooting hmm, nice. <laughs> in mississippi yeah um but yeah he's a great filmmaker yeah and then from that the same company was making a film called the convent and oh they, mike was the, yeah that's yeah. where i met mike, mike mendez. mendez so yeah. we got joined up by our mutual friend uh makeup effects artist screaming mad george oh wow and, so yeah. <laughs> amazing it, yeah. what a mind he had right and talent and incredible just what happened to him He's in Japan. He, is he's, he? Yeah, he's living out You there never now. hear his name anymore in the hallowed halls of makeup effects. Yeah. I don't know what he's doing, but I believe there's some rather large retrospective of his work in general coming up out in Tokyo next year. I want oh, to say fantastic. I saw something about that. But yeah, his work is incredible. And he's uh, he was a friend of ours and he's a friend of mine and Mike's and he connected us. And now Mike and I have been great friends for many years and have done many things together. You did Grave Dancers and the documentary of, of Masters of Horror title yeah. together, right? So. Yeah, that was a blast to get to do as well, just to get to go meet so many people and see all these spaces and like, go to Rick Baker's warehouse before it <laughs> shut down and all that fun stuff. And you were just the composer. <laughs> just. But, I, I, but I you think got just to be involved. Some of that, I, I feel as a... I mean, see, of course, everyone has a different approach to this stuff. And the more people I talk to, the more that really cements for me. But for me, it doesn't seem that unusual to spend a lot of time on set Mm -hmm. because that's just been my path because I've always been working with friends and filmmakers that I know and people that I respect. And I love this stuff. I just want to be there. So it seems that that's rather unusual from what I hear. It seems that composers don't really tend to spend much time on set or go do that, but. 
I find myself spending time not only just hanging out on set, but writing on set and just absorbing it. And just the, the cues you get there, I find, are things you can't really get elsewhere. There's just so much information. That's right. where it's that's where it's happening. I mean, the original intention is there. That's where it is. So often a production is not in the same place as the post-production takes place. You know, you'll shoot in South Africa and then do the editorial in in L.A. and right. scoring in L.A. and the like. But to be able to be there, obviously, is a great advantage. Um, when you were doing Laser Blast, this was your, your first time. Had you been able to observe the process with other composers because of being in this film family, Richard? Uh, how did that come about? Well, I hadn't had too many experiences like that. I'd had, I'd had a few when I was living in Italy. <clears throat> my father was doing uh, a lot of... Uh, the spaghetti westerns at the time, mm -hmm. as well as the the, the Hercules type movies, right? Right. So you know, he worked with, yeah. that's right. So he worked yeah. with you know Steve Reeves, Gordon Scott, and all those types, right? <laughs> the muscle man, or the muscle man, yeah. right? And then the the westerns, uh, <clears throat> they, <clears throat> they were all well, all the movies were Italian slash American co-productions. So he would always bring in you know significant actors for the movies, be it. Uh, uh, Robert Ryan or or uh, Joseph Cotton back in those days, you know the ones who get you an the, international the, sale. International, <laughs> the, the Mitchum kids, yeah. uh, lots and lots of people like that. <clears throat> so, but what left a big impression on me, especially later, was having gone to a couple of scoring sessions of those movies and. That right. again, I was very young at the time. Maybe I was, I don't know, eleven, twelve. So or this something. was mostly in Rome. <laughs> this was in Rome, right, right? Yeah, right. And so I'd go to the place was actually called Fonaroma. That's where they had the scoring stage, mm -hmm. and the and I went to see a couple of scoring sessions there. And in those <clears> days, <throat> everything was orchestral. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, the the most electronic you got was an electric guitar. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that was about that was about it. Uh, I was lucky enough to actually be, and again, I wouldn't know this till years later because it didn't mean much to me at the time, but one of the scoring sessions I was at was with Ennio Morricone. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. but yeah. I didn't know till years later. It was it just... Well, oh, that's kid, who that guy was. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's who that guy was, <laughs> yeah. right. So uh, because a couple of the Westerns my my dad did, they, they, uh, they used a couple of pseudo-composers, Italians, who were actually under the tutelage and supervised by Ennio Morricone, so he would he was kind of like the boss man uh, at you know. Uh, so you learned time. from the best. I, well, I don't. I didn't <laughs> you learn. Didn't I, know was, it. It was an, I didn't know it at the time yeah. exactly. So, but osmosis but, but boy, was at work. But yes, but voice being that you know when you're ten, eleven, twelve, whatever I was, and being at the, a scoring session with a you know thirty, forty, fifty piece orchestra and seeing the film up there and hearing the live instruments. That's like that's a that blows your mind. So tell me what the experience was your first time as a composer on a movie with an orchestra. You you right. kind of came right. to the fore right before really cheesy synthesizer music in the eighties was Yes. Well that was that 
that well as as you know laser blast with a huge budget of a thousand dollars was all yeah. was all electronic yeah uh and this is we're talking pre-midi days right midi didn't exist at the time i mean halloween so, in 78 kind of blazed that trail it, yeah, it, yeah. It, it blazed it blazed that trail and so you know we performed everything live but the very next score that i did was a an orchestra full orchestral score that I actually mm. recorded in England. It was called "The Daytime Ended." Oh yeah, and it, and it yeah. was with um, about a thirty-five, forty-piece orchestra. So I went from a thousand-dollar electronic score to six months later scoring in England with part of the London Symphony. <laughs> oh, I'm going, the LSO, whoa. wow. You know, I'm going, yeah. whoa. You know, or was nice. it a National Symphony? One of, one of those two symphonies. One of the big ones. At, yeah. the, at the time. Amazing. Granted, it wasn't, you know, 90-piece orchestra, but 35 pieces. And Were your you first conducting score, as well? I did not conduct that first one. I was too scared. <laughs> I was. <laughs> I said, if I, this comes out sounding halfway decent, I'll be happy. Yeah. Right? So, uh, no, I did not conduct uh, that one. Uh, but uh, that it came up fast. My first actual orchestral score, and that's if if just doing my first score with Laser Blast was like uh, you know solidifying what I wanted to do. When I did it with an orchestra, I said, "Well, this this is definitely this is it. This is <laughs> not, no if ands or buts. You this know? is what I want to be doing." And here, what yeah. I was, I was like a twenty four, twenty five year old guy doing a score in England with, a, with, a, with, a, with a, it was. I was lucky, you know, yeah. and it and it turned out really well. Nice, you know, and it and it came out as it as the the either the first or second digital um, soundtrack ever record ever released. The first two ever released soundtracks that were digital were Star Trek and Daytime Ended. They were within a day of each nice. other. Nice, believe <laughs> it or not. Good. I think. His soundtrack did a little bit better, <laughs> maybe but, a little. Right, yeah. But just to have it out and your first soundtrack, and you know, in one part of the London Symphony, and so that you know, how can you not love Pretty that? Pretty nice beginning. Yeah, yeah. So, Joe, let's talk a little bit about being a player versus being a composer. And you know, you were in the band. You were playing in the band by the time you were doing music for film, and it was it was a little before I, I was more or less on the band track for a time and mm -hmm. I'd, I'd i'd wanted to score films before even going down that road uh, just i just figured the time the time would come and just this was just, yesterday's tear it was or this drown a, this the, the, well drown they're both the same the same band, band yeah, but just change. a later yeah it was a later iteration of it same um, group of people more or less yeah. yeah for the most part um but so it wasn't really at the same time but they're completely different animals they're so different um just yeah that's what i want to find out about how, how they impacted one another or how they did not they're totally different tracks the only thing in common is that at the end of the day there's something you can listen to I mean, other than that <laughs> yeah. they're completely different and just this comes up a lot in conversation with other musicians i know talking about you know things you know, music for film and versus music just just to make music and, and not just in rock worlds but also even in classical worlds people just writing just new concert music or new music to be performed which is often overlooked from just it it seems that it doesn't get the concert hall doesn't get the play it once did i think right, right, <laughs> so yeah. it's a it's a different they're all different things I mean, that's the thing with music there's so many different approaches to it and i think they really are 
all completely different and how you go about it and the energy behind it is is always going to be different. Well, even in film scoring, you can have a fantastic film score that's not a good album. You know, that music that makes a movie fantastic is not necessarily music that plays well on its own. Uh, and a, a lot of people I don't think realize that often when you're scoring, you're making soundscapes more than melodies sometimes. And particularly in the horror genre, I mean, tell me the appeal of your approach to how you would score a horror film as opposed to a drama or something. Um, is it less melodic? Is it more um, sound design? Is it, uh, do you have a different approach? I think the, I mean, it wouldn't really be for me anyways, I don't think it would be a blanket approach to this would necessarily be different than that without knowing specifically what it is because the specific, the, the, the specificity is, you know, <laughs> yes. is um, that's really what makes each each one different to me. And no matter what the genre, whatever it is, mm-hmm. it really is. There's there's an energy inside of this thing that's that's made up of so many things. And for me, I just start hearing it as soon as a project is even mentioned to me. We sometimes we just start talking about things, and then I just I'll just start hearing it, and and that'll just sit there and maybe refine on its own on its own over time and then it's just a matter of translating what is that what is that color what is that is is it is it sparse is it a lot of instruments is it one instrument and an electronic bed is is it a melody what what is it so i i don't really worry about running out of ideas because it's it's really just like grasping things out of the air that just show up and happen to be passing and then just Oh, look at that, and then look at it more closely, and then more and more closely, and then start taking it apart and going, "What makes it?" And then that's where the score comes from. Well, you've done a lot of ghost stories, and so you're creating the unseen with something that you hear rather than seeing. Is there something that uh, do you have a kinship with the other side? Is there some, do you believe in a spiritual other side? Um, not just creatively, but in your own life. I, I I don't really, I don't really hold it as a belief, but I, I I don't really see any of this as this side or another side. I think it's all one side. It's all one world. I think there's just one thing happening, and mm-hmm. we're all just little parts of it. If you can even split it, it's just you zoom out far enough, and there's only one thing happening. Mm. So, in a, a musical sense. What is your greatest challenge? What's something that you want to stretch your abilities? You know, is is there something that you haven't done yet that you really want to in terms of genre or just in terms of instrumentation or a 90-piece orchestra or uh, a goal that you have yet to found, found the right platform to use? I can't say I really have any set things that I... Oh, I want to do that. I mean, there's lots of, I mean, there's lots of instruments to, that I'd lo- enjoy writing for, or different voicings to approach, or different things. But it's not. I don't really have any one set goal that I would. Uh, I've always wanted. To, I would love to do that. I, I mean, I'm been blessed with some great opportunities to just explore the musical voice that I would want to explore, anyways, and the themes and ideas that I would want to sit around and think about and process, anyways. So it just is. It's a really great natural fit for me to be able to 
think about and process or or not think about and feel and try to channel these ideas that I hear. What's your favorite part of the process? Is it seeing that first screening of the film or being on the set while it's being put together? It's coming to life. Uh, is it actually playing? Because I know some scores, you'll just do all of the sample parts yourself. Or is it bringing in other instrumentalists with you to do that? Um, is it mixing it down? Is there a part that you're particularly excited in, uh, or just the very inspiration of the beginning of what it's going to be about? I think nearly every part you just mentioned is all exciting to me. They're all really great in their own ways, and they're all very different. Um, the hearing hearing something that I've been hearing in my head for a while, and then getting it out and having it played back for you by musicians is always just an incredible experience. That's always like hugely rewarding to have um, just something bouncing around in your head for sometimes months and just be twisting it around and thinking about it and rearranging it in with the inner ear listening inside and then to hear it back and to get as and to hear it back and it pretty much feels like what you thought it would feel like is that's that's pretty incredible feeling for sure that's pretty fulfilling yeah that's Very. amazing richard what about you when you're composing mm -hmm. are you hearing the orchestra or are you in the theme are you uh, well i'll go back to your first question and, re and relay it to that question. I, when I'm looking at a film for the first time and, you know, and I'm going to be scoring that, I look for what the sort of third dimension is. We're look, it's a two-dimensional medium, basically. So I'm looking at what that, what's underneath everything. What's not just what we're seeing, not just what we're necessarily hearing, but what are the driving forces behind that particular film or characters or sequences. Because I find some of the better scoring, a lot of the time, doesn't have so much to do with the actual action per se on what you're seeing and hearing, but what's driving that behind the scenes. So you can think of a lot of scenarios where, you know, you go, wow, who could have thought of that piece of music behind this scene? You know, and a lot of those times it really works well, something sort of counterintuitive. So the, for me, the, that's the key in spotting a film and seeing what the director and producer, the powers to be, what they wanted to say, one, right? And what it says to me, and those ingredients that have that really should be brought out in the music. Now, like Joseph was saying, whether that comes out as be it atmospheric or thematic or whatever, that's that's secondary. I personally, I love themes, and I try to incorporate them a lot because nobody ever left a movie whistling a sound effect or an atmosphere. <laughs> True know? enough. It's just they just don't. But Boy, you know, it's like some movies, and like, you know, how can you disassociate Doctor Zhivago from Maurice Jarre's score, right. music, right? Well, how, even you know, how can the you? Reanimator, even okay. uh, Insidious, even In you know Insidious. what we did on Valerie on the Stairs Valerie, and Nightmare Puppet Master. Here's yeah. the like, twelve of them or ten of them, and. Everybody can they can relate to that film without the theme. The music completes a movie, it seems to me. You know, it creates it. It, it, it helps. It's the entire identity of, and cohesion of and and 
definitely cohesion if it's yeah. done if it's done right. So it's not so much just the themes, although I I do like themes, and themes also can be used to 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 help guide the audience as to what's um, what's really pertinent in those particular characters and how it ties how it ties one character to another. I think one of the things we're suffering with today is and have been for a little while is we're really into these big you know sound effects movies you know because bombastic. you've got a big bombastic <laughs> because they're spending a hundred million dollars on on visual effects and so you got effects 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 and sound effects and boom 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 and there's not a whole lot of room you know to put a theme in there you right. know there's so it's 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 more these days i find generally speaking a lack of themes generally speaking mm -hmm. sometimes there's some great themes you know and but I, i'm having a little bit of a problem generally speaking but again it it, it all ties together whatever is going to tie that movie together to make it cohesive so that the audience has that experience right that the director and producer want and that and the composer if you once that really gels then it's just it's all amplified you know exponentially as to how it delivers well i've always said that a great horror movie has to be a great drama first first it's got to be great in a mainstream dramatic sense and on top of that you have the building blocks in addition to the drama to create dread and suspense and fear and tension. And those elements on top of good drama, making it more complicated and more difficult to do a horror film or a horror score well uh, than merely a drama score or film. It's you know, I, I've never even really taken that thought apart quite that way, <laughs> but the, it's, it's, a really, it's a really great point. The drama of it is, and yeah, because essentially no matter, no matter what's going on, there's, something is at play there's something happening within this so it's 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 all it almost is irrelevant how fantastical it gets mm. when speaking of the drama to it because i mean that's just levels of modulation right it's like exactly. if it goes here or there right, right. um so that, that's gravy that's the gravy. right that's the gravy but it's the drama which comes down to writing it's that's what propels everything you can have the best effects you can have all this stuff you can have all this stuff right but boy if you don't have the drama carrying that you don't have much well that's one thing that impresses me about the work of both of you guys is that it's very emotionally based it's very human and the best horror stories horror films uh are something that you can connect to emotionally a slasher movie is great for 90 minutes and then once you've walked out of the theater that world doesn't exist for you anymore but in something you know we've done a couple of things together richard where there you know my my subgenre of emo horror is something <laughs> i like to do and the work that you've done on the conjuring and insidious and other work too it's got a very human center that drives it more deeply home and connects us i think music is such an emotional connecting point that what you do is crucial. Well, yeah. that oh, go ahead, Jeff. Yeah, no, I was going to say it, it's it's it's. I mean, it's like you know, these, these things get hard to talk, hard to talk about when we get really close to it. But it's it seems for me it's it's about holding a space open where 
the movie can happen mm. and people can feel these things. It's about holding and and that's where it gets a little, I mean, of course, there's all the the technical side of shaping it and tweaking it. And of course, there's people's comments and notes and ideas and filtering all of that through. But ultimately, it's just it's about. For me, letting that space be a, a naturally open place where you're not pushing people along too hard either. So it's like because that that sledgehammer I, music that guides you rather than enhances the experience. Is that what I, I, I know for me, it's like I it's on a, I, I I sometimes I'll feel moved along in a way that I'm not naturally moving with a piece of material and that takes me out of things right you're being feeling a little too manipulated i mean granted Mm -hmm. there's i know there's that's that's what we're doing ultimately is you know we're crafting something and manipulating (laughs) yeah but the but it's but without feeling it it's kind of like a a really great magic trick if you're going to see it coming too far on you may tune out but if you're just really held in that space where you don't know what's happening and you're, and you're able to have that experience of suspending your disbelief long enough to just go along with the trick. So does that make any sense? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Richard Joe Mm -hmm. said that he pretty much was born a horror movie fan. Mm -hmm. Were you drawn to the genre? No, no, not particularly, not particularly. I was, and dr- yet you I, became a specialist within that, maybe because of your brother's company and that. Output. I think that well, definitely yeah. that's one part of it. Yeah. Um, on the other side of the coin, I've done a lot of comedy, I've yes, done a lot of yeah. animation, uh, family films. Uh, you were one it, of the first guys to do video game scoring, right? Right. But tell me right. a little bit about how that <clears throat> came about. Well, that. <clears throat> Excuse me. That came about. Um, well, again, you know, people have, have you know heard of me and heard you know my work, and and it. I can't remember exactly the first one that I did, but there was this company back ways called Interplay, and they were doing some really interesting games and stuff. And they were like one of the ones. We're in they the eighties, right? Nineties. Uh, more the nineties. Yeah, more the nineties. One of the ones they did, they got a deal where they did Waterworld, the game Waterworld oh, yeah. from the from yeah. the from the movie. Talk about bombastic. Talk about bombastic, <laughs> right? But so so they they somehow were able to get a lot of the actual clips from Waterworld. And they did some big integration. I think that's one of the first ones that I did, along with uh, one of the Star Trek ones. And uh, but I really really got into that on the. Uh, Along with Waterworld, some of the ones that had to do with um, uh, like uh, gothic and uh, not so much gothic, but like um, like almost the, the Hercules or Barbara, you know, Conan the Barbarian type things, like Conquest of the New World was one of them. And I, I liked it, it. It let me go into a couple of types of music that I hadn't gotten into with with film making, and I really really liked that. Plus, you know, they, it was at a time where, where they were finally starting to uh, sonically integrate real music into games as opposed to uh, having a, you know, like a little synthesizer do like right, not a Casio. More than 16 <laughs> notes at a 16 notes yeah. or a mono. Yeah, it was like horrible. So I was right at that. I started doing it right at that area at that time, rather, that 
all of a sudden, you know, I could do stuff with a 30, 40 piece orchestra and people would actually hear it back. So, uh, and the budgets were decent at the time. So, it, you know, who, who wouldn't want to do that? You know, and, uh, Plus you were exploring new ground. I was definitely exploring new ground. Another one that was big for them was called Clay Fighter at the time, and that was a whole orchestral score. <laughs> Joe, our producer here, here is nodding. Uh, he liked that like one. Conque <laughs> Conquest of the New World. There were about 10 or 12 that I did. I should probably get back into doing them now because now they've become... They're giant. They're just yeah. beyond... Yeah. I mean, look... We're talking about films and all that. Films is bust roughly a sixty-five to seventy billion dollar a year business. Video games is about one ninety <laughs> yeah, right now. I mean, it's pretty crazy. Joe, have you done video game? Scoring? I've not. Yeah. I, I have not. Is it no. something that interests you? It's. I mean, it's interesting, but only from the periphery because I don't really play. So it's so a theoretical. It's thing. a theoretical thing for me. Yeah, I never played though. Yeah. <laughs> I never. I never got into them. Yeah. But, but you scored I love them. Do, I yeah. love doing them because yeah. it was very much like film scoring. It was not it, not that different at all. I mean, Joe, I've people I've talked to these days that do quite a bit of video game work have described the processes. It, it definitely sounds a little different process wise from, but it's just something I've never I've just hasn't hasn't crossed my path yet. Who are your heroes as far as composers for film go? Film composing heroes. Um, uh, definitely Howard Shore would be oh, up there. Oh, yeah, for all the Cronenberg movies. Yeah. That Cronenberg-Shore collaboration really just hit me at the right time. Just It just was in at a... It was such a rich world that those two have opened up together. So and continues to be. And continues yeah. to, yeah. That, um, certainly Ennio Morricone. Uh, the, the Italian composing world was very influential on me, so it's... Um, hmm. Interesting to get to, you know, like from Goblin and Fabio Fritzi and yeah. great stuff. Uh, yeah. So is there something you want to do sonically that either a 90-piece orchestra or a Western or something that, that you know, you're a young composer and there's a whole world of work out there ahead of you. What are some of the, the paths that you're interested in taking? I mean, I... I a 90-piece orchestra is always good. I mean, orchestras are always great. I mean, sure. I mean, if, if someone's got an orchestra to work with, yeah, I'd love it. Sounds great. Let's do it. Um, but, it's, I mean, again, just as far as actual goals, I can't say I have – I mean, I'm just excited about whatever's – I'm excited about what I don't know. I'm not, right. I don't really have a thought that I'm hanging on to that I really want to do this. I don't have that. And you love what you're doing. I love what I'm doing, and I just want to keep – yeah, well, I want to do a 90-piece kazoo orchestra. <laughs> That's what I want to do. <laughs> no. okay. So what was the movie <clears throat> that you saw, Richard, hmm. that excited you about the process? Was there, uh, there was, was there a movie where you saw that marriage of, of sound and picture? That Oh, definitely. Oh, yeah. Well, there were me. two or three, but for sure, West Side Story. Ah, interesting. Without question. So an actual uh, organic musical right. with songs. And, and... Uh, Ben-Hur. Okay. Without question. Um, those two uh, just also uh, like a couple of the the uh, Ryan films, Shivago, right? Those... Uh, so you those, like those, Scope. I love Scope. I love, I love Grandeur, right? Mm -hmm. I love really good storytelling. I love the music to to like I first started out by saying I the music has to 
fill in that third dimension in a, in a two-dimensional medium, if you can really get underneath everything, really into the characters, boy, some interesting stuff can come out. And it's uh, some of the masters were really good at that. <laughs> I mean, I mean, one of my favorite composers, I mean, if we're going way far, like Corngold. Uh, uh, well, it was incredible. Amazing, Eric Corngold. I mean, I mean come on, it? incredible scoring. and The Seahawk uh, and things all like All those that, things. Yeah. And, and it, you know, those demands back then, you know, they were, it was, the filmmaking was different. They didn't, you know, go really, you know, into super, super into the characters. It wasn't like heavy. It was, that was more adventure and, you know, lightness or whatever. But the quality of scoring and everything back then, you know, the Steiners and all the Nooms, I mean, come on, they were just well, incredible. let's get into Bernard Herrmann, okay. just specifically because okay. of Psycho and Reanimator. Okay. Tell me how that came about. Whose idea was it? It's obviously emulating one of the great scores of all time. Right. Well, it was my idea. Yeah. No, no question about that. Uh, the way it, uh, in, I'm going to talk from the perspective of my mind here. And that's the it's, only it's, one it's, you the, can the, represent. <laughs> well, there are a couple, two things that when I first looked at Reanimator, I'm not talking about the very, very first cut, which was like two and a half, three hours long, but you know, the one that eventually we was that was the cut. Um, oh, even the first one, the, the one thing, the, the Herbert West character himself was a, I looked at it, I said, well, what, what exactly is he? And here we're getting back to, you know, getting into the character, getting under the character. He was undoubtedly a genius. Mm-hmm. Weird ass, evil genius, maybe, but genius, mm-hmm. right? Uh, he, his driving force was what? He wanted to do something extraordinary that wasn't really allowed or acceptable. But it wasn't for a bad purpose, was it? It was for humanity or furthering science or whatever. And all for his, his ego. And <laughs> for his ego yes. and all and all and all of that. So and at the same time, it, at least initially, the idea for Reanimator from Brian and Stewart initially was they wanted this to be a very straightforward, serious horror film. And when right. I saw it, I said, "There's there's a problem with that." It's pretty the, fucking funny. <laughs> that's it's one. It's kind of there's some really funny stuff in it, but it can't be treated funny-ish, right? right. Well, like a comedy. No trombones. But, right, yeah. no, yeah. No, none of that stuff. On the other side of the coin, there was stuff that was so gross in there, especially for the time, that the question was, well, would any of this make it through the NPAA? Would any of this even get on to, you know, survive? Right. And in my mind is was rather the audience if they, if you, if it was really approached totally seriously, they would just walk out. They said, "This is like too gross. It's too crazy. Forget about it." So I needed to give them permission to enjoy the gore, basically. Mm-hmm. So my idea was, what were a couple of the most famous soundtracks in history when it came to music and how it treated the characters? Psycho was number one, right? Without absolutely, qu- without question, right? And the famously black and white score. That's right. And the uh, the other one in my mind, certainly not as famous, was uh, Jerry Goldsmith's Freud. 
because uh-huh. Freud had some. That's a some, great score. It's a great yeah. score, exactly. And it had some elements. And then again, Freud, Herbert West, right. So you start seeing how my mind's coming together and how to how to sort of assem- assemble it. So I start saying to myself, well, I'm not going to rip off, you know, Bernard you know, Herman, Bernard or, Herman yeah. or, or or Jerry in that way, but. How can I make it so it's totally clear what the intent is? So I didn't really, I didn't steal their things, but I definitely borrowed, seriously borrowed, a couple of the main uh, string things that were famous in Psycho. So you were touching upon something in the back of the viewer's mind. Right. And tying it in with an experience. Immediately make them think of, oh, there is that thing which actually, in my mind, would say that's giving them permission to see kind of the joke. In other words, right. not joke, but... No, but to enjoy it. To, to enjoy it. In yeah. other words, don't take all this gore and cutting heads off and, and you know, all this. Don't take it seriously. Just enjoy the ride. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So that was my thinking of, you know, of how to, to utilize. So I took, I used the the, the, the strings, the dunk, bump, bump, bump from... from not the weep, weep, weep. Didn't use the no, those at all, no. but I used the other stuff that was... In the, the rhythmic in, stuff. The, yeah. the rhythmic stuff. Yeah. But then I made it even quirkier by adding a drum, drums in there right. and and a, and a counter theme. Ba-boom, 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 yeah, ba-boom, you ba-boom. inverted it a right. little bit. I inverted yeah. the whole thing. I screwed with it, you know, and, and so that it was its own, but it, unmistakably making that reference. So that's yeah. that was that was the whole sort of, you know, idea... Yeah, be you know be behind great. it, and then, but as you know, I don't know if everybody knows, but the my intent from the beginning was in the end credits was to put a caption on the after the music credits with like some and I can't remember the exact but with apologies, but my, my my sincere apolo my my sincere apologies and and whatever to Bernard Herman, right? Yeah. Of course, what happened. They left it out of the end titles. Well, it might have opened legal doors <laughs> for you. <laughs> no, no, not 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 really, it, yeah. it, because I ended up putting it on the on the CD ah, anyway. Okay. But it should have been <coughs> should have been on on the on the screen credits. And uh, one of the problems I ran in when I scored it was I I ran you know like two days over, and it was all a package deal. So mm. I lost like twenty odd thousand dollars <laughs> scoring it. <laughs> And then they wanted me to pay for the end titles to reshoot the end titles, which, as you know, is at least seven, eight thousand dollars back then. Wow! And I yes. said, I'm already down twenty thousand. I can't. I couldn't do. I couldn't do it. Yeah. So, <clears throat> so anyway, the rest is history. It is indeed. <laughs> you know, I, I've discovered enjoying different elements of filmmaking and and the effect on an audience over the years. You know, my job primarily is to make genre films. Uh, where you want to build tension and dread and fear. But one thing I've discovered is I really enjoy, and I don't think it's a sadistic joy, but making people feel pain to experience the pain of characters. And it's something as a storyteller that feels, if I can get that veracity across to an audience, then um, then I've done more than my job. Uh, is mm-hmm. there, Joe, is there something you really like to touch in an audience in an emotional sense? Fear. Absolutely. Fear. Definitely. And do you feel that there is a universality in fear or that if it's fearful to you, 
they're going to feel the same thing you feel. It's not, it's not really necessarily translating something that's fearful to me. It's more, going back to what I was saying earlier, it's more about holding that space open for someone to have a genuine experience. And what we're dealing with here in horror movies very often is fear and that space of uncertainty where you're not really sure what's going to happen or what can happen or if it will comply to the rules that day-to-day life seem to operate by. You just don't know. So holding open that space of uncertainty and allowing that just real primal feeling to come through is something I key into. Well, you were talking about the experience of being on set and soaking up the atmosphere and feeling what the the intention is of the filmmakers and the like, and that you've actually played uh, a demon. Tell me about that experience. Yeah. You mm-hmm. wanted to be a makeup effects artist. You have actually been on the receiving end a couple of times in the Insidious yeah. films and the like. So tell me how that felt in a completely other job on a film. It's definitely a completely other job. It's... Um... It's it's a whole other thing for sure, but it's uh I mean it's it's great. I'm I'm very comfortable sitting in a makeup chair for five or six hours. So it, really, it's, uh, it, that seems to be something that not anyone can do. So having done um, it in Thriller, I was one of the zombies in Michael Jackson's Thriller, for, and that awesome. three hours sit in the <laughs> sit in the chair with that. I'm claustrophobic a little bit, and it was a little rough. It was a lot more fun to play it than be in the chair <laughs> and get in it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean the just getting to have that just physical experience of seeing a scene happen from within it is uh it's it's a whole different type of challenge it's a very different thing and to be i mean nearly one of the first times i'm i was thrown into this i'm sitting in a scene with barbara hershey and patrick wilson it's just like so it's like definitely jumping in head first you know all the way but i just had a lot of trust in in james and he gave me this opportunity to do this and it seemed to also be just a very good fit. Tell me about that collaboration with James Wan. You've done it many times, and there must be a shorthand created there. Richard and I have worked together a couple of times, and we'll talk about Stuart Gordon in a minute, but uh, about how that works with the two of you. Yeah, there absolutely is a shorthand that's developed over time now, and it's we seem to key into it pretty early on. And it's uh, most of our conversations will be about very non-musical things we'll talk a little bit about music and a few things about voicing you have a voice here it's strings whatever the instruments are and then most of the other talk is about astral projection ghosts where you will have a lot of you know text volleys or emails about the 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 case whatever the case is in some of these hauntings of the films we've worked on together and because that stuff is just so fascinating just getting into all the the true stories that the true stories behind this. it, and then just really like you know, aside from just the mass market books, really hearing like, no, I talked to this person, I just hung up with this person, and let me wow. tell you what they said, and just really getting into the is that that's that's where it all really draws from for me. So you find yourself in in very similar places when it comes to not just film philosophy and music philosophy, but other philosophies about the life around these works of art. Definitely, it's really just taking you all of that into the stew and just letting it letting it feed where the inspiration comes from it's it's kind of like that thing with a musician can play a single note and richard i'm sure you're very aware of this but that single note the intention behind it 
will change how it feels and how it's played and how it sounds and everything about that one note is going to change by the intention so Absolutely having true. that being able to to look at these very specific things and take all that information in and let that feed the voice that you're speaking in that film is what makes each thing distinct to me so richard you're best known for the work you've done with Stuart Gordon on many occasions, including all the way through Masters of Horror uh, mm -hmm. and doing that where you and I collaborated yes, on, on one of the episodes. Mm -hmm. So tell me about your work with Stuart and, and how you see eye to eye, how you don't, what makes you so compatible? Well, I think, well, sort of what's interesting also, what Joseph just said when you asked him about what's that one thing, and he said fear and I just wanted to add to that because it relates to what I'm about to say. A lot of the times fear is you get to that fear through emotion. So sometimes, if not a lot of the time, uh, and this was evident in, in the show we just said with Nightmare Cinema, you know, the, the, the pretty theme at mm -hmm. the end it's really sad and painful if you think about it because he's exactly lost his mother, he's lost his father. But it's a pretty theme, and that is another vehicle, a way to get to those parts that are fear. Yeah. You know, so that's that's an important ingredient. And, yeah. And pain can be beautiful. Pain and, can be beautiful. And it can also be scary, yeah. right? And all of those ingredients. Yeah. Now with Stewart, of course, our first, you know, film was was Reanimator, and. Uh, yeah, we hit it off in a very sort of interesting manner because we were both uh, huge Frank Zappa fans. And ah. the, first, the first time we got together, uh, I forgot whether it was exactly a dinner. I think it was a dinner. Uh, we started singing Frank Zappa songs from, from, from the early... Like you know, live the at early, the Fillmore 71. Yeah, the even, mud before, even before things. that. Even before Mud Shark. Oh, even, yeah. even before that. I mean, yeah, I mean, you <laughs> know, like Freak Out and stuff like that and <laughs> what have you. So um, we kind of knew we had an interesting relationship because we could both sing literally the entire albums <laughs> of Frank Zappa. <laughs> so it sort of showed showed you where we both were there's <laughs> a very dry and wicked dark sense of yes, humor that he absolutely has as well. absolutely yeah. so we we definitely were in tune in in the sort of the dryness and the wickedness and the 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 vehicles to you know to get to those points Great. and uh uh i think what Stuart always uh liked about me as well as what i really like about him and and part of our relationship is he uh, is he doesn't mind if I challenge something that you know that he believes in. I'm talking. I'm talking about the particular product. If I'm, I'm not going to sit there and just agree right. with somebody, you know, for the sake of the job or whatever. Oh, you're so, the composer. Yeah. But uh, you'd better have better musical ideas than the director. Well, kind right? of, yeah, yeah, in a sense. I mean, it's, it's that's my, the job. It's my job. It's my job. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. So. Uh, he was always receptive to that, and and like yourself, I I respected the fact that uh, that the, the both of you 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 know you, you leave me alone. You say okay, do your thing, and then it comes a point where when when I'm ready, you know, to show you what I'm where I'm going or what I've done and all that, then 
then we we look at it and it's not uh, not somebody in either of your cases where it's like over the shoulder right type of thing which which is i i, I just can't work nobody like that. does you, their best work that no way. no you just yeah. you just can't and so that freedom is a very important thing and in most cases with Stuart, uh it, I cannot remember anything that I've done with them where there hasn't been, you know, one or two minor, minor changes in something. But like you, yeah. I mean, you've, we've what have we changed in what we've worked on? Yeah, not practically too much. nothing. Not too little much. something here, little something there. I mean, just basically, which is my very, job, <laughs> which is your job. But it's that it makes a difference. So first is to have that freedom to feel, and for for that freedom. You know, he has to trust me. You have to trust me, and vice versa as well. And then it then it then it works out. And uh, you know, with Stewart, it's worked out over good God, I don't know nine films or something <laughs> yeah, like that since nineteen eighty four. Since eighty four, yeah. plus the uh, you know we've done a couple of like uh, radio movies, you know, right. and stuff like right. that, which which is basically kind of like doing a movie you know it's yeah. except just with no just, pictures just with no picture exactly <laughs> well, not great. quite like doing a uh, a podcast mos though podcast. Yeah, <laughs> now, right. that we haven't right. done yet yeah that's next <laughs> richard van joseph bashara thank you so much for uh, some conversation about things we don't usually get insight into in the world of filmmaking well I thank you and really this, appreciate this was it. fun and uh, and it's interesting that uh, that here Joseph and I are a few years apart, but he is one of the few guys today who's who sort of like gets it when he was talking about the space and things and mm -hmm. letting things happen because they have a they do have a life of their own, and so he's 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 definitely proven that he's onto. The, the 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 right direction and how to go with the, the we genre. only have great people on the show right? thank you <laughs> good thanks guys really appreciate it. it thanks very much it. thanks if you're enjoying postmortem it would be a great great favor to us for you to rate and review and subscribe on itunes or your favorite podcast app uh, you can access all of my video interviews and behind-the-scenes documentaries, things like that, at mickgarrisinterviews.com. Reach us on Twitter at PostmortemMG and on Instagram on PostmortemGram. Thanks a lot for listening. Thanks for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every other Wednesday and subscribe on iTunes. Calling all coffee drinkers. If you've been trying to enhance your daily coffee routine, then Quest has got your back with their brand new iced coffees. Now available in two delightfully delicious flavors that'll be sure to add an extra pep in your step. Vanilla latte and mocha latte. Quest has been on a mission to help fuel you with protein-forward foods you'll love. Each bottle of Quest iced coffee is packed with 200 milligrams of caffeine, the same amount as two cups of regular coffee, plus 10 grams of protein per serving to help you supercharge your day. And did I mention that they only contain one gram of sugar? It might just be time to cheat on your iced coffee with iced coffee. Find Quest iced coffees on Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition. That's Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition.